This episode of the Show Me Comic Cast is brought to you by Audible.com. Visit audibletrial.com slash showmecomics for your free 30-day trial and free audiobook. Season 1, episode 12! I'm super excited to be here, and I am super amped up, because we are starting another new show segment, or format, I guess you should say, for uh, our episodes. One that I would like to think is very cultured yeah and one that's very philosophical one that is very academic all right but anyway it's called analyzing a great work and what that means is we're going to take a historic comic comic that did very well or is very highly respected in the field and we're going to try to break it down in an attempt not to just rah rah shish boom ba say what we liked about it but instead try to pick out what made it unique what made it successful and strip away all the details to have a tool that not only we can use but you as the listener to this podcast will be able to put into your toolbox moving forward in the future so would someone like to reveal with a drum roll what our uh, great work we're analyzing on this episode is Today, we are analyzing Frank Miller's The Dark Knight Returns. Yay, rah, rah, yay, rah, rah. <laughs> First of all, I would like to say that I thought this comic was terrible. Really? No, I'm just kidding. Oh, okay. <laughs> all right. So, uh, we'll start it out. Sam, I would like to give you, you to give us kind of like a history lesson. Like, where in the timeline of comics, what was kind of going on when this came out? Uh, what was the impact and what was the impetus, if you have heard uh, in like an interview or something, like, where did this come from? What made it different at the time? All right. The Dark Knight Returns was written uh, sometime in the early 1980s. I'm not sure the exact date, but I know it was published right around 1985. And what made this comic book unique and what set it apart from everything else was that up until the early 80s, comic books were still kind of the... Uh, they were still seen as, like, the colorful, you know, uh, kitty thing. Bam pow. Yeah, Superman and Batman and Spider-Man and their big bright colors. And, you know, at the end of the day, the bad guy loses and the good guy wins. And uh, cotton candy and rainbows for everybody. Now, that's not to say that that's the only thing that was happening in comics, but that was right. the... That was, that was still the general perception right. of what a comic book was. And up until that time, it was pretty close to that. Um you know, I mean, you still had certain comic books in the 70s that dealt with drug abuse and uh, and certain uh, social issues. But for the most part, comic books were still really tame and thought of as a, you know, as a child's product. And when The Dark Knight Returns came along in the 1980s, Frank Miller took what, you know, the mainstream saw as a comic book and just flipped it on its head. Now, I think that kind of started back when he was at Marvel, didn't it? Because they had... Daredevil as a character was never very popular um, and didn't sell very well coming up to when Frank Miller kind of, you know, was first making a name for himself on the scene and they gave him Daredevil and he completely infused it with all of his new ideas. Uh, right, and, a lot of crime and uh, noir-influenced storytelling. And, and Japanese uh, right. cultural he, he influences. Wolverine, right, before Daredevil he was also in Wolverine and there was a, a comic book he created called Ronin. Uh, 
and he was seen as a uh, kind of a revolutionary. You know, again, at the time, comic books followed the same pattern, the same format. Here's your good guy, his origin story, not throw a cape on him and let him go, you know, fight crime where, you know, Frank Miller came in and he goes, okay, let's take this Wolverine character and, you know, throw in this crazy, you know, Japanese martial arts backstory. So and, they kind of got, I didn't mean to cut you off. Do you have more to say about that? Uh, yeah, just the yeah, same thing with Daredevil. Like I said, uh, at the time, comic books kind of followed a certain formula. And with Daredevil, he took that and, you know, said, well, what if we took Daredevil and added this gritty, you know, kind of back alley crime feel to it? What if we took one of those like 19, you know, 30s black and white noir films and took that element and threw this into the comic book and how much of that changes just the feel of it? All right. So he kind of let some lightning out of the bottle. And if I have my history lesson correct, uh, he did that for Wolverine. He did it for uh, Daredevil. And then Marvel kind of wanted to put a little bit of that lightning back in, you know, and say, you know, kind of rein Frank Miller in a little bit. And isn't that when he made the move to D.C.? Right. That that was partially it. Um, by the time the Dark Knight Returns came around, he yeah, he was already an established writer. Um, and I think like many uh, creators that tend to get a little bit bigger than their industry he felt handcuffed he felt like oh okay you know what they're wanting to uh take the reins on me and tighten them up a little bit well i'll go do my thing over here or i'll go to the person that wants to give me the most respect or the most money or the most interesting project or the most interesting project and uh i remember i was reading an interview where he said one of the editors from DC, you know, called him up and told him about this, you know, that they wanted to bring him in and, and do some work on Batman or another character. And, you know, he said, well, I got this idea for, you know, kind of if you took Clint Eastwood from the Dirty Harry films. Right. And combine that with Batman, you know, make Batman a little bit older and a little bit darker. And it was actually on a flight that he was sitting to with a, another really well-known comic book creator named John Byrne. That they oh, started yeah. tossing around some of these ideas where Frank said, you know, I want to make him older. I want to make it gritty. You know, John Burma's one throwing out the idea of like having a female Robin and all these other all these other ideas, and uh, you know, from that point on, he wrote it just like a movie script, pretty similar to how you did with Hafu, and uh, from there it turned out, you know, this book that and he, making, well, he was the artist too, right? We can't uh, talk too much or can't glaze over that, right? Oh yeah, for sure. He was the writer, the penciler, the inker. He did everything except color the book, and it was his wife that did all the coloring. And that part I did not know. His wife, Lynn Varley, and uh, they. Uh, well, no, I take that back. He didn't do the inking. I'm sorry. It was uh, I'm trying to remember that it, Claus Jensen, who's like now like you know regarded as one of the greatest inkers ever. I don't know. I think it depends on the penciler is with. But Oh, let's kind of uh, highlight that real quick, is that some of these things that we uh, will hit on as memorable comics throughout this Analyzing a Great Work series that we're going to do, um, It's we can't overshadow the fact that it's comics are a collaborative medium. Right. And, I mean, even down to the letterer, right. you got to look and, you know, like, let's say you want to be a letterer in this industry, and that's one of the reasons you follow our um, podcast or whatever. It's like, go find those ones that were considered a great work, and more often than not, you will see it was because all the pieces were great. Right. Not just, oh, man, this was a, you know, phenomenally written and it was drawn horribly, and it was lettered and inked horribly, 
it, it's not going to stand the test of time the same way other great works that were firing on all cylinders are going oh, to. For Jim Lee is a good example of that. Um, he's had the same inker like his entire career. No matter where he goes, the same guy inks for him. It's, uh, I think he's going to play Scott Williams. And I read somewhere he also, as much as possible, uses the same person for lettering. You know, because he talked about the flow of the story and just how much certain fonts are a certain size or where the word balloons are placed affects how the story's told or like right. the pacing of the story. You know, it's like in Hafu, you know, I, I thought to save time, I'll do the lettering, I'll do all the placement, everything that way I can just get it all done at once. But it's like, one, I didn't realize like just how time consuming it actually is. And two, how the placement of the word balloons can just. Uh, bring the pace of the story or tell you how fast the characters were talking to each other or if one talks over the other or just representing a, a space and time and how much effect that just laying out words and balloons can have on the story. Well, it's like that now infamous line from the Kevin Smith movie where he calls the guy just a tracer, mm -hmm. you know, the inker. Yeah. And it's, I think he really did uh, highlight part of the psyche of comics fans there though is because we do tend to think of those smaller names on the cover as being less important right, letter right. But like can you name a famous letterer no yeah right they don't get any of right. the attention or the glory mm -hmm. but that doesn't mean that lettering is not an art form mm -hmm. just because people don't talk about it mm -hmm. and i think maybe people should talk about it more maybe we could do a an episode about lettering in the future. Mm -hmm. It's it's so much like a rock band that the front man, the singer, always gets the credit. That's the one where they're... My girlfriend always has the tendency when a song comes on to go, oh, who sung this? And right. I'm like, it's Led Zeppelin. What are you talking about? Who sung this? Robert Plant sung it, but it's Led Zeppelin, the band. Why would... Do you really care who sung it or who the band... Oh, okay, I meant who was the band. Absolutely. But the, you know, the mainstream always goes towards that front person in comic books. It's the artist. And it sucks to say, but I get credit all the time for half one. Dude, right. dude, that's awesome. I can't believe you did this whole thing. And I'm like, well, I drew it. But you came up with all the, like this. And then I'm like, no, no, that, there was a writer. There was Jordan Taylor. He came up with the entire, all I did was draw it. Like, I feel a lot of times like, I'm not going to take credit for all this stuff. Going right. on. All I did was draw it. But to them, oh, man, the art, that's the. Well, that's, I think you see the flip side of that in the. Um, big time comic world you know is that sure. actually right now it, and i think it goes back and forth like a pendulum swing but right now the writers get a lot of the credit and it's like hey you know you're not reading this thing in prose format you know somebody had to draw this somebody had to make the story come alive uh in art but i think right. some of the bigger names right now are getting to be writers right like, Brian Michael Bendis and people like that. Yeah, you know? right. I still um, think of it like a movie, though. When you see like the movie star, the actors and actresses, they get all this credit and all this fame, and you go, "Man, all they did was show up." Right. I, I even further is <laughs> like when you're watching a show, or I like I'll, I'll read a uh, like a review of a movie, and the critics like, "I can't believe so and so played the character this way," and it's like there was a director that was having them play it that right. way. The actor hardly does anything; they just show up and look a certain way. And have to have at least a little bit of talent, but it's the directors, the writers, and everybody else. But it's that actor or actress at the end of the day gets all the credit and all the fame, and they shouldn't. Well, and do you like, remember the some of the series that took a nosedive during the writer's strike? What was this? Yeah, uh, you know, for sure. Yeah, for sure. Heroes. That just goes to show, you know, in a lot of cases, 
uh, some of the unsung heroes uh, should be sung about. Right. And we, so that we don't perpetrate the same thing, let's go ahead and mention who actually did the lettering, the coloring, and so forth on this book. I have it right here. Go, go, Gadget Arms. Hopefully the credits page is going to be easy to get this from. Okay, so lettered by John Costanza. Can't stand you. <laughs> <laughs> With Klaus Jansen, you mentioned as the inker, and Lynn Varley, the colorist. And I know this is going to make a lot of people mad, but we can't forget to mention Batman was created solely by Bob, Bob Kane. Kane. No, he wasn't. Pop <laughs> Kane is worse than Stanley. Way worse than Stanley. A lot of people dog on Stanley, like, oh, he didn't give Jack Kirby and he didn't give uh, Steve, whatever his name was from Spider Man credit. At least Stanley will admit it, though. He'll say, okay, yeah, these guys helped me out. I just wanted to take a lot of the credit when I was younger. But Stanley Dude. did create Batman. <laughs> but whoa, Bob whoa, Kane. whoa, whoa. Protocon. Stand down. <laughs> He's got... Guys, we got to stay on topic. Protocon's getting pretty upset here. <laughs> uh, so to back on topic, we're talking about... First of all, let's let's just go around and hit... Like, What was your impression when you first read The Dark Knight Returns? All right, well, Ra- I was a... Go around the table. I was a, uh, a, a lot younger. Uh, I was probably eight or nine years old whenever I read The Dark Knight Returns and... I think the first thing that blew me away was I opened the book and Bruce Wayne has a mustache. And I was oh, like, yeah. whoa, wait a second. Batman doesn't have, like, I didn't hit you. I was young enough that as I'm reading this, I had no idea that, you know, this story had such a such a history to it already and was as uh, revered as it was. But, uh, yeah, I opened up and I'm like, Batman has a mustache? He looks older? This is just, just the style of the art. While you're at it, could you kind of give us a synopsis of the, at least the the 30-second pitch of the story so that readers who haven't read it kind of can have an introduction? Like, what's the premise? All right, so the premise of The Dark Knight Returns is that Bruce Wayne is 50 years old, and he's been retired as Batman for the last 10 years. Basically, the government forced all superheroes to kind of turn in their superhero card and either work for them or force them to retire. And... At 40 years old, Batman was kind of feeling the effects of age, and Robin had died, and so he finally, just after you know a lot of pressure, gave up being Batman. So it's 10 years later. <clears throat> he's an older man. He's 50 years old. But we find out that Batman is quite a sociopath. Batman's got psychological issues that started from the time he watched his parents murdered in front of him. And the only way that he has to deal with, with this pain that he's under, these, these you know psychological scars is to go out and beat up criminals. Well, not to mention that the other part of the premise is that Frank Miller paints Gotham and even America and the world in general with a very depressive, dystopian kind of brush. Oh, damn. Um, So that plays into the fact that Batman's like, you know, I this world just keeps getting worse and worse. You know, I know that's not all because of me not being there, but at right. least part of it is, especially right. in my own city. Right. But I guess the way I took it was, it's still just, at the end of the day, it's his excuse to say, to to rationalize the fact that as a 50-year-old man, he should go out and put this costume back on and start beating people up. Right. To me, it's still, it's that psychological thing inside of him that says, okay, this is my only way of dealing with this crazy trauma that I suffer with every single day, is to go out and beat up these criminals. And 
to me, what's cool about it is you learn, you're like, he never gets over that. Just because he's an old man, he doesn't stop having these feelings of wanting right. to be Batman. And so, you know, because of the crime in Gotham and the way society's gone, you know, he looks at that's his excuse to come back. But to me, it's that that kind of cool, uh, you know, tragic side to it that it's yeah. like he can't escape this ever. He's going to deal with these issues until the day he dies. Well, and that makes it uh, ups the stakes so much in this comic because he starts as an old man. And it's like, right. that makes it kind of sad. You know that he's going up against some odds that. 20 year old Batman might have seemed had more favor. Right. But he, now you're like, oh, please don't, don't take this guy on. Right. You know, it's not going to end right. well for you. But okay, we'll, we'll bump it over to Tim, get his impression of the first time he read it. First time I, I came late to the comic book and the Batman game. Before my history with Batman was solely the Adam West series. As, Tim Burton movies also probably and the Tim Burton movies uh but I was I was watching the Adam West way early. Uh so yeah, the Tim Burton Batman was the first dark Batman I had ever seen and then it went into Batman the animated series. I didn't get into The Dark Knight Returns until Sam recommended it to me. I was probably in my early 20s, so we're talking like 12 years ago. I came late to that game. But when I read it it was the first time I had read a Batman comic that was legitimately dark. Um, a lot of the other ones before, it was still it still focused heavily on the campy Batman and Robin type era, which oh, still like the bank robber wears a bow tie. Yeah, that kind of thing. And it was, <laughs> um, and it, like I said, it's been a while since I've read it, so I don't remember as much of the story as I should have as I should for the sake of this podcast. But I just remember. This being a legitimate Batman story where it focuses on his mental state and his age. is Before, I don't ever remember, like, Batman suffered a legitimate trauma as a child. And we have never expounded on that before until this comic. And that's what sticks out the most for me in this. As well as Frank Miller's kind of political statement that he has with the comic in general. All right. Well, uh, I remember when I came upon the comic, first of all, the thing is, as I was growing up as an adolescent, I never sought out comics. Like, I read the comics mm-hmm. that found me, uh, not the other way around. Yeah. And that doesn't mean that I didn't enjoy comics or that I didn't read them. It's just that my uh, stable of reading material was a lot smaller uh, than most of your average comic book fans. So I remember when we were teenagers kind of talking about the possibility of making a comic and I asked Sam, well, hey, what kind of com- what's a good comic that I should read or should have read? And he gave me a copy of uh, The Dark Knight Returns to check out. And, you know, th- looking back, because I just reread it in preparation for this podcast, but before that I hadn't. And before we started, the things that I remembered is way different than what you guys remembered what I remember was the Superman-Batman conflict part mm-hmm. of the story. Um, and more so, not even the actual like fight that they have, but just the role that Superman played in society. Like, having direct conversations with the president. Mm-hmm. And did I say Batman or did I say Superman? You said Superman. Okay, good. Uh, just too many man-mans to keep uh, track of. <laughs> Man-man would be a but, hilarious Superman. Uh, just looking in... You know, seeing Superman in a comic where Superman's not necessarily the main character or the good guy. Right. That, I thought, was pretty uh, groundbreaking. Um, 
And the other thing that I thought was groundbreaking about that is you never get this. Uh, there's a lot of re- or characters from the DCU that show up in this comic, but not on a big old splash page where they're like, they all have one fist out, right. you know, and they're flying right. towards and it's a would make a great poster. It's all story driven. You're right. all encountering these characters because of events that are happening and they don't all meet up at once and sit around and talk to each other, right. you know. Well, and, yeah, Catwoman shows up as a middle-aged, overweight prostitute. Yeah, and they're like, oh, basically, <laughs> they're like, you look terrible. Yeah. <laughs> you know, when they right. see her. It's not like, oh, Catwoman's back, and she's still got it. Right. You know, like leather and hot at the age yeah, of 50. Now she's on the Golden Girls. 98% of the you know writers out there would probably want to write, but uh, yeah, everything in it, I'm like, Whoa, it just made me think of seeing a universe of superheroes in a broader and deeper way, as in people that live in the same place, not that uh, people that are written by the same writer, if that makes any sense at all. Um, So that's what I remembered of it, and I thought that was really cool. So, Okay, you got our initial... um, Well, just now that we're still talking about what stuck out to us, the other thing, you know... Where I say it was the psychological side of things. I like where, as you continue to read this book, you start to get the idea that Batman realizes he can't continue going on doing this. And part of why he became Batman again is kind of a, uh, like a death march. There's yeah, so well, many scenes. I remember in the, in the first time he puts on the suit, you know, and starts fighting bad guys, he's like, Whoa, I can't believe how good I actually feel. Like, I thought right. this was going to be harder. Right. He starts uh, Because off. he started off defeated. He's like, I'm going to go out there and get my butt kicked, you right. know? But then he was like, hey, I actually uh, yeah, pulled, he, pulled it off. He jumps out and, like, you know, because the whole book is narrated from, you know, Batman's point of view. And one of his thought box, one of his dialogue boxes is like, I feel like I'm, I'm baptized. He's like, the rain on my chest is like a baptism. I'm reborn. Yeah. I feel like a man of 30 again. No, a man That's of 20. That's the part I was talking about. And yeah. then. As he continues on, he starts to feel like an old man and he realizes, wait, that's not it. But what I'm referring to is like all the different times where he's in a scenario where he says, it's kind of like, oh crap, this would be a horrible death. This would be a horrible yeah. way to die. And he's like, there, there's the scene where he's going after Two-Face and he's falling out of the helicopter and he's, a, you know, he's been shot in the chest, plummeting to his death. And he's like, this would be a good death. And then he's like, but not good enough. So he saves himself. Yeah. Like he's thinking, and th- the story starts off, Bruce Wayne is like a, like a NASCAR driver, and he gets into a huge accident, and he's like in this fiery coffin, and you think he's about to die, and then at the very end he pulls out. And it's like, yeah. you get the idea, you start looking back, you go, oh, he's trying to kill himself. He's putting himself in a dangerous way. And when, right. one, you know, when he's finally in a scenario that's big enough... And he might just, on purpose, die. Well, I mean, this book's been out for 30 years, so we can have spoilers galore that <laughs> he doesn't really find that time until he's fighting Superman. And he's like, okay, this right, this is right. a good one. Yeah. yeah. Almost like he's had this in his mind for a while. This is how he'd like to go. Yeah. And, <laughs> and it's a fight of, you know, icon versus icon, and they're not the same icon. You right, know, they right. stand for different things, but... Um, not to say that Superman's a bad guy in the comic. It's just the way it's presented through Batman's viewpoint is you can really see how 
there can be two senses right. of justice. You, and I think you see a lot of the you see a lot of the comic book world through Frank Miller's eyes. Like Frank Miller has said on occasions that he thinks Superman is a tool. I'm one of the, I, I'm in the same boat, and I think Tim's always been with I'm me on Superman. Been... When, when the newest Superman movie came out, we were both kind of like, "Wow, that's the first time Superman actually looked kind of cool." Frank Miller's the same way as he's man. Superman's a tool. Well, it's interesting in the comic. In the very first couple pages, you see uh, two uh, psychologists or psychiatrists talking to each other, mm-hmm. and one of them has that very tool kind of jerk persona. Right. And when they pull the camera back, he's wearing a Superman T-shirt right. under his jacket. <laughs> right. Right. Now, what makes that so brilliant is you don't know Superman's even going to be in the comic till probably a hundred pages later. Right. Um, but he already starts to do that foreshadowing of, "Hey, this is how this story is going to treat right. uh, the Man of Steel." <laughs> <laughs> well, like we said at the beginning of this episode. We have a sponsor now. It is Audible.com, bringing you over 100,000 downloadable Audible audio titles. And if you visit Audible.com slash ShowMeComics... AudibleTrial. Oh, excuse me. AudibleTrial.com slash ShowMeComics. Uh, you can start your free trial membership today, and what that gets you is a free audiobook. I listened to podcasts, found out about this deal, and did the same thing myself, and ever since then I've been hooked on audiobooks because it's a way when you're doing mundane tasks that you're not having brain atrophy because you can put in good input uh, for instance the book i'm going to recommend on this podcast is marvel comics the untold story by sean howe have you guys heard this book i've heard you talk about it okay i've have read you? it yeah i've read it is that the one that i think i recommended to you it might have been but the, here's the thing is sam is obviously an old fogey because he read it. I listened to it via the Audible podcast app for iPhone, and I was able to use my credit to get that book for free. And it was a really interesting insight into uh, the business of comics, learning about different creators. And some of those that you will hear about is Frank Miller, like we're talking about today. And it's just really a great listen. And look, if you haven't been into audiobooks before, I wasn't really. I thought audiobooks were for people who had a long commute to work. That's not the only time you can use it. I listen to Audible while I'm mowing the lawn, doing the dishes, sometimes at work. Basically, any mundane task, you can stop that brain atrophy and feed it with good stuff. Start your free 30-day trial and get your free audiobook, Marvel Comics The Untold Story, at audibletrial.com slash showmecomics. What I want to do now is kind of shift gears and us just you know sitting around talking and having fun uh, reminiscing is to say... When we sat down, because this is called analyzing a great work, what were we able to pull out of it and say, this was done well? Because to tell you the truth, when I was reading it, I found some things that I thought weren't done well. Uh, Not to say that I'm particularly going to bring those up, but I was reading it with a critical eye. I think that's important for, you know, uh, aspiring comic creators to be able to do that. Just instead of putting down a Batman story and going, wow, that was great. I want to write Batman. That's your initial feeling, you know, but it's like, okay, was it Batman that made that story great or was it the storytelling tools that could make any story great? So with all that said, I can get down off my soapbox. Um, Sam, what did you learn from this comic that you have actually employed or want to employ in the future? All right. Uh, so art-wise, um, if you read that book from the beginning to end, 
the beginning starts off the art is like really tight it's really crisp frank miller's lines are on you can tell he's taking his time he's getting detailed and as the pace picks up and probably his deadline started getting tighter. I was going to ask if you that, that artwork starts getting really loose. It probably got to the point that I think Frank Miller was giving thumbnails and Klaus Jensen was just having to render from there because I don't know if Miller was just, if it was on purpose because the pace was supposed to feel faster, if he just was like, you know what, screw the art. From this point on, it's all story and <laughs> I just got to get it up there that people get the point. But Yeah, it does get pretty rough there. Yeah, the as it goes on and, and it's something that he's he never really got back to. Like from that book on, if you look at Sin City, look at, uh, I'm trying to think, there's a couple of 300, there's a lot of books since then he's done. The art is like, it's not the same guy. It's not nearly as tight. The art just looks like he goes through as fast as he can just to get the point. It has that. And you, you, you see could it, call yeah. it abstract yeah. if you're trying to make it a positive. Yeah, or you, you could see call the it transition sloppy. halfway through this book. It starts getting, you know, I want to say it's gritty because that's the feel he was going for. But a lot of it, I think, was just time. Some of them really work. Some panels do, and others don't. You know, right? There's some. It's, it's almost confusing. You go, man, if his wife hadn't done such a really good job with the coloring. Or Jensen had to do it with the inking. I don't think I would have understood what he was trying to say with yeah. this panel. I mean, I've, I noticed some things with, like, proportions that were way off. You know, like somebody would be wearing a suit, and their head was really small, and then their, you know, the arms of the right. suit were really big. The shoes were really big, and so, uh, it was a little bit off. Uh, now, from a, from a plus, even though I don't really, I don't handle this part of things, but just from comic book perspective as a whole... We talked about the lettering, but just his dialogue, the dialogue for the characters. Everybody had such a unique voice in that book. Absolutely. You know, like everything from the the balls, nasty teenagers, and how all the teenagers had their own lingo. Batman himself, who sounded like Dirty Harry, and uh, Commissioner Yindel. You know, like every single character in that, nobody talked the same. They all had their own style of speaking, almost like their their own like dialect in a way and that's super important they uh you know a, one, a writing tip is supposed to be that you should be able to read just the dialogue with no tags like out loud you know to somebody who's not reading the comic right and they should be able to tell when a new person is talking right yeah you, you could have read this book and covered up the panels or the panels that were drawn really crude and still know who was saying what because of the dialect Absolutely. And I thought it was also interesting, um, you mentioned the mutant dialogue, I think, or the teenage dialogue, um, that he was able to create an interesting dialect, which dialect and dialogue, obviously, two separate things, but they kind of work together. But the, the mutant dialect was just so unique. It was fun just to read it. Like, it always, it didn't always make sense, but it was entertaining, and you knew that that was the point. Like, you shouldn't be a 50-year-old man and be able to hear a street criminal of 16 years old talk and understand every single word that they said. Right. You know, they're going to have a different way of referring to things than you will, uh, especially coming from a complete different social class, you know. Um, and I thought he did a really good job of that. It's interesting when Carrie Kelly talks, she's also a teenager, and she has some of the same cadence and rhythm as the the criminal teenagers, but doesn't use some of the same uh, shorthand or slurs uh, that they use, which was interesting how he was able to keep that same 
uh, feel right. without the same exact right. details. Yeah. A really good job, and it kept her within her character. You, Carrie Kelly's kind of a a, a she, bookworm. She's kind of a dork, you know. Like she yeah. doesn't try to fit in. She's not one of the popular kids, so it's like she still says a few of the popular terms to be a teenager, but not enough to try to fit in like the mutant gang does. Yeah, you, know, you still get the idea that she's young, but at the same time, she's not trying to fit in with it. It just it really well separates each character. Awesome. We actually hit one of the things on my list. The other thing I want to talk about artwork-wise was what I noticed from a storytelling point or standpoint was, man, lots of panels. Jam- like The pages were jam-packed. There was very few splash pages. There right. was, I would say there's probably less than 10 splash pages, and none of them were double-page splashes. Right. They were all single-page uh, splashes. Um, you as a an artist that has to translate a script to panel layouts, uh, what did you notice about the way the grids and, and the panels were packed so tightly in, in this story? It's because Frank Miller writes cinematic. Um, you know, this is something we say when we market our book is that it's more of a cinematic feel. We talk about how you wrote the script more like a, like a movie script and not like comic book format. And uh, that's why when it came to, you know, thumbnailing and, and designing Hafu and the sequential art, I referenced The Dark Knight Returns a lot because it was written the same way. Um, I don't know if a lot of listeners know this, but, you know, Frank Miller's wrote quite a few movie scripts, you know, not just the Sin City films or 300, you know. He did the original screenplay for, like, RoboCop 2 and 3 and, and a few other movies, like, you can tell he's a guy that probably wanted to work in film, right? <laughs> but comic books was the next step. So when he writes his stories, he writes them as if they're movies. And then when he breaks them down and goes into panels, uh, that, that's how that book plays out. You read it like it's a movie and that's going to require a lot of panels to where almost instead of there being 20 word balloons in one panel to save time you might get a panel for every single thing that's said. And that's very similar to how our book reads. Yeah, and well, uh, one thing I want to say about that from a, a writing or storytelling standpoint is, okay, how do you do this? As the listener of our podcast, how do you make a kind of a cinematic style? And there's different things that are able to break it down, and I think a lot of them are based off of who is the narrator and how much are you utilizing that narrator's viewpoint? Or do you have more than one narrator? I personally feel like if the more um, viewpoints you use or the, or the more narrators who are telling the story from their perspective, uh, the less cinematic you get. And what I mean by a narrator telling the story through their point of view, in comics that's usually narration boxes or thought balloons in the voice of a specific character. If you go through The Dark Knight Returns, you pretty much just get Batman's inner monologue. And you don't, you know, that's actually kind of sparse when you compare it to the rest of it. Right. If you look at a narrative tool that he used to basically be the narrator instead of Batman saying, uh, man, I think that, you know, it's really hot in this town. You know, the weather is changing. Instead of putting that all in Batman's head and making it read more like a book, Frank Miller puts in an actual news report. This is a device that he uses throughout the book. Constantly having TV broadcasters right. talking out loud instead of someone's internal thoughts. Because right. in a movie, you can do the internal monologue thing, but you have to put a voiceover on the screen, which you see sparingly in movies because it takes away from the cinematic feel. However, 
you know, it reminded me actually a lot about the like original RoboCop or Starship Troopers, how they have those little vignettes where it's right. like a, a newsreel. And um, he does that a ton in this book, and it works to make it cinematic. Uh, the other thing is, uh, if you're making it cinematic, in movies, they switch viewpoints all the time. Like in our book, there's the one we're, or the half we're working on right now, uh, there's a part where the main character walks down to the, to, get lunch and for only what would probably be like a minute of film time we cut to a stairwell where some people are talking now she doesn't know that these people are talking only the audience does so we switched from her viewpoint but we didn't give those characters internal narration right and you'll see that same thing in the dark knight returns like when you switch to harvey dent or the Joker, any thoughts that they have, they say them out loud uh, or whisper them, you know, something like that. The only person that gets the narration box where you're just reading his thoughts is Batman. Right. Uh, and the other thing to take into consideration for where those tools are useful is the amount of pages that you have to work with, you know, because Dark Knight Returns is like our story. It's just here's a story we had to tell and we've got you know 150 pages to tell it right we have a beginning and an end we don't have to worry about you know having more and more and more and more never-ending issues after this we're in a traditional you know monthly comic that's 24 pages they can't have you know multiple panels for one di- you know one dialogue balloon it's almost like they go we have to cram as much as we can onto this panel and transition to the next scene and you'll have, you know, three different scenes within three different pages just because they have a certain amount that they have to hit just for that month. And it really handicaps the writer a lot, I think. Absolutely. And you could tell that in the use of the other thing Frank Miller did when it comes to panels is he has a lot of silent panels. Um, and I think silent panels probably get cut a lot out in monthly books where you right. don't really know where you're going. But I remember some of the most powerful reactions being like the Joker just responding to things like you just see the joker's face he's not saying anything no one's talking directly to him and you're just watching you know it'll be like three or four panels in a row that's actually takes up like two seconds of time but it feels so much longer and so much more impactful because four panels feels longer than two seconds right so you get to see the gradual faces almost like they're filming slow motion i thought that was really neat right um you know, we're we're kind of coming to the end of talking about The Dark Knight Returns, but uh, the last thing that I want to say, and I kind of want to get... Actually, I have two things, because I'd be doing a disservice if I didn't mention <laughs> them both. But you guys can give me both your input on them. I'll just state them as a fact, and then you guys uh, say whether you think that was good, bad, indifferent. Um, the other thing I really liked about Dark Knight Returns and that it did well is... Um, swinging back and forth from superhero action to very human moments yes sure and i mean these people were like in different places all over the city as the character of the city is breaking down right uh the one i really remember is he has like i think it's only a total of a page maybe two pages there's basically a a mugging and this purse is trying to get snatched from this lady and she says that or her inner monologue talks about how she had just earned 10 extra dollars and that Mm -hmm. she was having a hard time paying the bills. But you know, she's got this kid who has an artistic side of him. She used that 10 extra dollars to get him a paint set and thank God for that paint set. And then when she gets mugged, 
she starts thinking, you know, I, where I'm on hard time. She says, I've never begged to have the electricity mm-hmm. not shut off. Never begged it, you know, with the insurance agent. I'm just making those up. I don't know if they're accurate, but yeah. she says, but I, I look up and I beg for that $10 paint set. Right. And she clutches her purse and, uh, the muggers leave with all her money or whatever. And she feels in her purse and she says, thank God, you know, the $10 paint set is still there. Mm-hmm. And what's this thing that feels like the size of an apple? And then, boom, she blows up because right. they, after they got her cash, they dropped a grenade or whatever right. into her purse. Right. And she thinks it's the paint set. To me, the best part about that scene, too, is that she clutches that and she's like, you know, oh, thank God it's still there. And you don't see an explosion. It's the next panel. That's the news. The news report again. says explosion takes out, you know, <laughs> innocent bystander right. in, in subway or something like that. But, um, you know, contrast that with. Green Goblin, you know, in New York, flying between two buildings, right. just throwing pumpkin bombs. Mm-hmm. Boom, 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 blam, blam. Michael Bay, bam, bam, yeah. blam, blam, blam. You know? <laughs> right. Totally different than, I mean, he really gripped me with that single page. Right. You know, I was enthralled. And, uh, you know, it made, when she blew up, I was like, man, Batman's got to right. take right. these thugs down you know right um so if you can learn anything from that it's like just making those human moments will put raise the stakes so much and it doesn't always have to be something bad happens to him right. you know oh, for me the the part would be for me this is what was different about comic books was the good guy always beats the bad guy and they don't like each other and it's this eternal conflict when he uh when he realizes that harvey dent is two-facing in the dude that mm-hmm. has the face all wrapped up, and he keeps going, come on, Harvey, it can't be you. I thought you beat it this time. And then finally, you know, he, he captures Harvey Dent, and he wraps the thing off of his face, you know, and Harvey Dent, you know, is yelling at him, like, come on, you know, I had to do this. You know, he's like, what do you see? You see my ugly face? For those that haven't read the story, Harvey Dent gets, like, plastic surgery where his face looks perfect again. Right. But instead, the reader sees it as though the whole face is the messed up side. Because that's yeah. how Harvey Dent always sees himself. And when he asks Batman, you know, what do you see? I can never escape this. Tell me what you see. And Batman says, I see a reflection. Because he sees himself as mm-hmm. this crazy bat that's psychologically scarred and has to beat the hell out of people to maintain his little bit of sanity. And it's like, he's over there sympathizing with Harvey Dent with Two-Face, his longtime villain. Yeah. And the scene ends with him actually, like, hugging Harvey Dent. And it's like... To me, I was like, I'm not used to that in comic books. Absolutely. Them sympathizing and with the villain. So a lot of people like to focus on how The Dark Knight Returns was darker and grittier. But at the same time, it was warmer and yeah. more real yeah. than a lot of stuff that you were more getting. Human. Right. Yeah, and Until you get to the Joker. <laughs> well, I remember was... I went to that, uh, you know, comics writers workshop with, uh, you know, um, Scott Lobdell and other guys. And I remember it was uh, Joshua... Dysert, I might be butchering his last name, but he said, if I can give you one piece of advice as a comic book writer, and that goes for storyteller too, or a writer of any medium, he said, be a humanist, study people, learn people's stories, um, and use that to inform your own art, whether that be drawing it or writing it. And I think that's a brilliant piece of advice, and you can see it extremely well executed in The Dark Knight Returns. Um, Okay, so I got you guys' feedback on that. The last thing I want to say is, and this is another piece of writing advice that I heard from a famous fantasy novelist, Brandon Sanderson. Uh, He talks about how he teaches a class of new writers, and what he sees is a lot of new writers coming around, and, you know, their story starts out with a bang, 
and then kind of fizzles off and he says you know this ending was kind of weak and he was like or the students say yeah but just wait till the sequel that's when it really gets good you know and he said why am i waiting for the sequel like put that good idea in the first book your first book should be chock full of as many cool things as many good ideas as you can think of do not hold out because if the first book's not cool enough that sequel's never coming you know or you're gonna have lost that reader when i looked at the dark knight returns i saw you could have made you know 200 pages off of batman vs harvey dent right you could have made 200 pages of batman vs joker batman vs mutant gang Batman versus the new police commissioner who wants him arrested. Right. You could have made probably 400 pages of Batman versus Superman. But what Frank Miller did was he was like, I've got all this cool stuff and I'm going to pack as much cool stuff in this story as I can. And I think that's what makes it such a classic and such a, you know, a rip through read is like, you know, you, those stories that have the one cool thing, they drag on they get kind of dull you know but i mean batman defeats the mutant gang and then now he's got to use the mutant gang to right go to this next threat and it's just the ante is something cooler is always right around the corner right and that's what you want to people keep turning the pages of your comics do you guys did you guys get that sense when you were reading i was gonna say it's it's great character development you know and that's what You got awesome characters at every scene. You know, if those characters are awesome and not developed right, you're not going to care about them. And if you don't care about them, then why would anybody want to read it? It's like Breaking Bad. Incredible character development. That's what keeps you wanting to watch the next episode. With this, you want to see that next scene to what happens with these awesome characters. And I mean, so let's think about that as an amateur comic writer or artist who's sitting there and you're coming up with characters and you think man, I've got this really cool character named Man-Man. You know, he's a a man with all the powers of a man. You know, he can grill steaks with the palm of his hand and freaking change channels with the blink of an eye to, you know, sport zone and stuff like that. Uh, Being a little bit silly, but let's just say you're like, all right, Man-Man's going to have a great comic line and he's going to have all these issues. And then, you know, time goes on and you're like, oh, man, I got this great comic idea for, you know, dog man Dog man, you know, can freaking rip people's faces off with a sandpaper tongue and freaking smell out villains and stuff like that. And you're like, <laughs> man, once I get to be a famous comic book writer and I can do my creator own project, I'll have man the man man line and the dog man line. Yeah. It's like, and then they're gonna team up, for dude. Man's best friend. Don't wait for the team up for man's best friend. Right. You know, have it be man's best friend is the title of your comic, featuring man man and dog man. Maybe they're fighting each other maybe they're a team right it doesn't matter but it's like put those two cool ideas put more cool ideas into a project because guess what uh as the same author said uh in his lecture ideas are cheap you know you'll come up with another one down the road don't worry about Mm -hmm. squirreling them away because you know the more you squirrel them away it's like the old guy that buries all his money in the backyard and then he dies and never gets suspended so i think one of the big things with aspiring comic book writers or writers in general is they think they're going to make the next big thing like they're going to have a legacy of ongoing series or ongoing stories like they're going to be the next Robert Jordan mm-hmm. with a 14 book arc you don't need you don't necessarily need 14 books focus on the one book 
Make sure that's a good story. And then if it can go from there, like make sure you can wrap everything up in one story. And if you can go somewhere from there, great. But if not, I mean, you don't, don't plan for like a million things. Yeah. Well, or as Brandon Sanderson said, don't hold back, you know, don't, you know, wait till after that first comic is awesome to worry about making the second comic awesome. So, uh, by the way, uh, Dog Man and Man Man are copyright 2013. Jordan Taylor, you can't, uh, you can't take those ideas because they're cool enough and put them in the same place. I wish I had real estate in the palm of my hand. <laughs> With that said, let's go ahead and uh, end it there. So, Tim, I think you would like to wish us. This is Showing Me Comics, wishing you the best in your creative endeavors. And if you would like to learn more about our projects and also uh, what podcasts we've got coming out, the blog, buy the comic, do whatever. Yes, go it's for to- sale right now for only $9.99 plus shipping and handling at showmecomics.com. And that's comics with a CS because we know how to spell like Frank Miller. And add us to your social media if you're on Facebook right now, which you probably are. Like us at... Facebook.com slash Hafu Graphic Novel and follow us on Twitter at Show Me Comics. Woohoo! Yay!